Welcome to the All Hours Podcast. I'm Alex Costa, joined by Anthony Grieco. With the New Hampshire primary wrapped up and the general election rapidly approaching on November 8th, we thought we'd give you an update on which candidates won their respective primary and which issues are most important to New Hampshire voters and subsequently the outcome of the 2022 general election. According to a recent poll conducted by the St. Anselm College Survey Center, the two biggest issues facing New Hampshire voters this year are inflation and abortion. As supply shortages and energy costs continue to linger as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and the war in Ukraine, the prominence of inflation continues to rise, which according to the New Hampshire Institute of Politics, will have the greatest impact on how voters in New Hampshire intend to cast their ballots come November as 33% of participants in the survey indicated that the issue of inflation will directly affect how they plan to vote in the general election. In addition, according to the same poll of over 900 registered New Hampshire voters, the overturning of Roe v. Wade has dramatically increased the likelihood that one's stance on abortion will impact how they will vote in the upcoming election. In fact, since St. Anselm College's last poll in August, the issue of abortion has risen by eight points, making it the second most impactful issue affecting how the citizens of New Hampshire intend to vote with 20% of those who completed the poll stating that it would be a contributing factor in how they would cast their vote. With these issues in mind, the people of New Hampshire, through the process of the primary election, have put forward the following candidates. Vying for the first and second congressional district seats in the House of Representatives are Republicans Caroline Levitt and Bob Burns, taking on Democratic incumbents Chris Pappas and Annie Custer, respectfully. Republicans Don Bolduck also received a nomination on behalf of the GOP to run for U.S. Senate against Democratic incumbent Maggie Hassan. Finally, Democrat Tom Sherman and Republican incumbent Chris Sununu will be going head-to-head in the gubernatorial race. Each of this year's incumbents have served the people of New Hampshire for multiple terms already, but even so, is expected to be a close race and every vote counts. To that end, none of this matters if you aren't registered to vote. National Voter Registration Day was on the September 20th this year, but there's always time to partake in one of America's oldest and most sacred traditions. So be sure to get registered and go out to the polls on November 8th. On September 20th, the St. Anselm Humanities, along with the NHIOP, hosted Dr. Russell Muirhead to discuss whether this is still belief in the legitimate political opposition in America. Dr. Muirhead is a professor of democracy and politics at Dartmouth College, and we have Anthony here to help share what was discussed at the event. Dr. Muirhead began the discussion by explaining how the, pro- the popularity of conspiracy theories are on the rise, and more importantly, that conspiracy theories are now often directed at demonizing people of, of opposing political beliefs. These conspiracy theories are greatly contributing to the political divisions of America. Did Dr. Muirhead suggest any possible resolutions to this problem? Yes. Dr. Muirhead discussed how America most likely needs a national myth or a common belief to unite the country. Many people suggest that the Constitution can be this unifying myth, but Dr. Muirhead explained that far too many people disagree on the Constitution and its interpretation. So did Dr. Muirhead offer a different unifying myth? Dr. Muirhead believes that Americans can unite around the common belief that making politics is better than making war, as if, as if we cannot solve these political differences. War is a possible outcome. In order to make politics effective, Americans must agree on election results and have a peaceful transfer of power. Once in power, is there anything our political leaders can do in order to ease these divisions? As Dr. Muirhead explained, political leaders must not use their power to punish their political opponents. 
Also, Dr. Muirhead believes that non-political civic activities can help ease the national divisions of our country. In order to accomplish this, political leaders should institute a national service program where young people of all political and cultural backgrounds can come together around a common cause. Thank you for sharing that with us. It sounds like it was an incredibly interesting event. Last Thursday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released the Consumer Price Index report for the month of September, revealing that inflation is easing up, but it's still close to 40-year record high levels. Compared to August, where consumer prices were 8.3% higher than last year, September's prices were up 8.2%, higher than what analysts and experts were, predict were projecting. Prices at the pump are still falling, but it doesn't mean much for voters concerned about inflation in the economy when food and rent costs are still rising. Inflation, like it has been for the past several months now, is still on the top of voters' minds when they're heading into the polls in November. The Federal Reserve is likely to continue hiking interest rates in its aggressive push to quell in to quell inflation, renewing fears of a possible recession in the coming months. Top business leaders are already convinced a recession is inbound. Jamie Dimon, CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, told CNBC he predicts a recession is coming in the next six to nine months. President Biden is still optimistic about the economy in the near future. Biden said he doesn't believe the country will be facing a recession. If it does, it'll be slight. Republicans have made their their message clear on campaign trials across the country. Inflation is close to record 40-year highs, and Democrats were in office while it climbed. On their roadmap to taking control of Congress, they've been banking on inflation. Democrats have been contending with this criticism by pointing to their legislative victories near the end of summer. Notably, the CHIPS Act, which made new investments in domestic manufacturing of semiconductors, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which made new investments in combating climate change and lowering health care costs. As we get closer to the midterms, races are getting closer and closer according to polls, and it's getting harder to tell who's winning out in their, in their messaging to voters. And now an interview from James Maloney, who interviewed NIHOP Executive Director Neil Levesque. Hello everyone and welcome to the interview section of our All Hours Podcast. For our first interview, I have the wonderful Neil Levesque, who is the political director here at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. Neil, how are you today? I'm great, James. I'm just glad that you pronounced my uh, name correctly. That's great. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Excellent, so excellent. Perfect. So in essence, what is the New Hampshire Institute of Politics and what goes on here? We do research in the building. We do, now we do the uh, St. Anselm College Survey Center. Mm -hmm. We've been doing this since about 2018. Very successful polling operation. Get a lot of national news from that. And we have two auditoriums. So uh, in our main auditorium, we do about eight to 10 big events a week. Some of these you might have heard of, things like Politics and Eggs, which is a nationally known series. Mm -hmm. But we host any number of groups going from the Cub Scouts right up to President Biden. Mm -hmm. So at any given moment, there's a lot of activity with politics, civics, and a lot of media attention, things mm -hmm. like debates and things like that. Mm -hmm. We also have a full television studio in the back. And so when you see someone coming out of New Hampshire that uh, is going on CNN or Fox or whatever the news organization, uh, most likely it's coming out of this studio that our students run. And so we have a lot of fun with that because it's a force multiplier. And uh, 
this is just a really fun place and very interesting place if you want to be around national media. You know, uh, it's almost daily that there's a nationally elected official here, whether it's a member of Congress, a U.S. senator, the governor of New Hampshire here is, is here quite a bit. So a lot of interaction with national figures and uh, high elected officials. Yeah, that's, that is a great definition of uh, what it is. And the New Hampshire Institute of Politics is also known for being a bipartisan uh, institution. How do, you, how do you guys maintain uh, that bipartisan uh, view for the public or to make sure people understand that this is in fact a bipartisan institution and all political ideologies are welcome? Well, we work really hard at it, but to some degree it's a little bit easier because you want to be sort of the fair referee. And what do I mean by that is, you know, politics is sort of like a boxing match to some degree, you know, with the argument. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a boxing match and the ref is not fair, uh, it's not a good fight. And we want the argument to take place here. We want people to discuss politics in a civic, civil way. Um, but we want to make sure that they feel that this is a place where they can do that without some sort of bias. Um, you know, sometimes that can be hard. So if you have a presidential primary, for example, that's you have an incumbent Democrat, well, there's going to be a lot of Republican challengers. So you may have 20 different speakers who are all Republicans. Uh, but the next election cycle, you may have the opposite. So we try to sort of invite everybody and have a lot of good, uh, rich discussion. And we're not afraid to invite people. I've had any number of people from the, on the far right, the far left, uh, people who have uh, opinions which are sometimes controversial, uh, and we're not afraid to do that because we need to do that in this country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, now to kind of now that we understand what the institute is, its functionality, what it does, and the view of it in New Hampshire, how did uh, you get your start here at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics? What's kind of your background in uh, joining? Uh, the St. Anselm team and, you know, helping to expand uh, political learning and political events for everyone. Well, for people who are listening to this, so just to give you background, 52 years old and when I got interested in politics, watching Ronald Reagan debate when I was at boarding school years ago, and that's where I really got into it. And I always had a love for it and I didn't know what I was going to do. I studied politics in college and philosophy, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. And uh, I had done some internships, which really didn't intrigue me on the campaign side and things like that. But I jumped into politics. I had a great mentor, and I think that that's something that if students or people coming out of school have a strong and good mentor, it makes all the difference. His name was Hugh Gregg, and he was the governor of New Hampshire at one point in the 50s. He was the youngest governor ever to be elected governor of New Hampshire. Uh, he was the father of U.S. Senator Judd Gregg, who has an office, by the way, in this building and really is the founder of the Institute of Politics. And he really took me under his wing and he got me started in the State House of New Hampshire and then I worked for a member of Congress who was running for, for to, to, to oust an incumbent, very challenging campaign. Uh, the congressman won that. I stayed with him for 13 years. Uh, working all over the place in politics, but also uh, dealing with the presidential primary. So when your boss endorses, say, Bob Dole or 
a John McCain or a George W. Bush, um, you spend a lot of time on those campaigns and you get to know what they're doing on that. So you get to know the reporters and everything else. And I came through the door here and it was a little bit different institute than it is today. And so uh, as a team, we decided what we we're going to do is really focus on a lot of the presidential activity. We were going to uh, really create an institute of politics that was focused on students. So we have 130 or so student ambassadors who were engaged in this institute. Uh, we were going to make sure that they had opportunities, so we did that. And we were going to sort of try to figure out that it would be a place for all politics, really the home for politics. So you've, you've got to do the TV, you've got to do the debates, you've got to do the polling, you've got to do the historic aspect, every kind of thing you can do so that these people are coming through the door and it's being utilized. And I think that that's, we've been very successful with that. Um, I, I, when I first came here, I had my students and uh, I had always spoken in the back of the room. I, I, you know, I was a staffer. And as any good staffer knows, you, you're not supposed to be recognized or heard. You're supposed to be sort of in the back. And when I gave my first speech here at the Institute, I remember being so nervous that I think I just flopped and my students were sort of like, you know, very disappointed. I'm sure that maybe that hasn't changed, but, um, you know, you sort of grow over time and, and we've really done this together as a group. I'll tell you that we've had a lot of students graduate from this program. Um, we have them on the on outside the White House as uh, production people for major news organizations. We have them inside the White House. We have one running for Congress right now. They just go into a wide-ranging uh, aspect of politics and business, frankly. Some are lawyers now, mm. but just a wide range of wonderful students out there. So, Yeah, and I mean, as an ambassador, I've been lucky enough to meet Kelsey Walsh, who works for ABC Now. Um, and then, uh, of course, Caroline Levitt is running for Congress right now. So uh, it's been interesting to watch her campaign and see how that's going. And the fact that she went here is just, it's like, you know, it's, it's really amazing what students can do with this program. Um, it's really cool. Uh, you know, when you're around these people and you learn how to be a pro in politics, it makes all the difference. And so. There's a lot of our graduates have gone into different things because there are very few places in the United States where you can have this kind of access to the media and to, and to elected officials as you can here at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I wanted, I wanted to ask, you know, from, from ambassadors, both past and present, what's been some of the greatest reception on specific political opportunities that are offered uh, by the Institute? Well, each individual student has their own interests. Let's say I had a student named Marissa. She, she really liked foreign policy. Foreign policy is a hard thing if you're in college to sort of break out into and earn a decent living. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, you know, everyone's not born a Secretary of State. And so you've got to sort of understand that a lot of the people in the foreign policy arena maybe came from campaign sides or other elected officials. But she was encouraged to go work for the United Nations. And I remember thinking that that was not a good thing for her to do. That if you want to deal with foreign policy in the United States, you need to work for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because that's where the foreign policy really is conducted. And so we had John McCain and John Kerry here for an event. 
together, two men who were, or were at that time, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I have a great picture of Marissa right in between the two of them. And she ended up working for a member of the Senate uh, who was on Senate Foreign Relations Committee. She got transferred to the committee. She then went to law school with all that experience under her belt, came out of law school. She works dealing a lot with foreign policy from a client standpoint with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And uh, I'm sure that financially it's a very good position. Mm. So I think that that's the kind of success story yeah. where you've got a, each student is an individual, you can't really have a broad stroke. Mm. But I think that that's really one of the ones that I really, it sticks out for me. Mm. Um, we place a lot of students with the media and so for a while they learn how to be journalists and you know, in a, in a newsroom, they're seeing how the news is really, uh, I wouldn't say made, but uh, really put together and then uh, promoted and, and distributed to the general public. Mm -hmm. That's so valuable because when you go out into business or you go out into politics or whatever you're going to do, you sort of have to know how the news business works, right? And uh, so they have a lot of great experiences with that. Um, um, but it's wide-ranging and it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important to note because you mentioned how you know we want to teach about the business side of politics, and I think specifically with like media writing, you know, media writing is way different than academic writing. Yeah. So well, the first thing is, is in academics, I always remember coming out of school and they at school they'd say we want a minimum of five hundred words, and of course. Once you get in the real world, they say, if we could keep it to 30, 30 words, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's completely different. You're right. Right. It is. And, uh, and also, like, time crunches. You know, you're always on those uh, time crunches. you got to get that story and get to it first and get it out first. So, of course, you want to keep all the facts. But, yeah. You know. And students here sometimes will complain about the fact that they'll write a thesis and they're under the gun and, you know, and it's, it's a stressful time for them. Mm -hmm. But you know what I say is, hey, you know, you could be working in the White House in two years, and the chief of staff walks in your office and says, I know you're an expert on X, Y, and Z, and the president needs to be briefed on X, Y, and Z, and you got two hours to create your presentation. So you're either going to quit on the spot, mm. or uh, after the horror wears <laughs> off, or you're going to say, I've done this before, mm -hmm. and I can do it again. Yeah. yeah. And so that's the great thing about a liberal arts education here and some of the things that you go through you know they're 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 exercises for the future mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and I think uh, you kind of specifically with the Institute and honestly the college as a whole you kind of get what you put into it you can you can really you know make your dreams come true especially with the story with Marissa and how you know she had this dream of foreign policy and she made it happen super inspiring I love that you're absolutely right. So what I have found working on a college campus is the students that are really engaged in our program here are usually engaged in other things across campus. Mm -hmm. And you find on any college campus across the country, but there's, there's a percentage of students that are really engaged in doing a lot of things. And then there are other students that are just not, uh, are doing, are not, uh, sort of accepting all of the opportunities that a college campus and some of the things that the Institute here offer. Uh, 
And so a lot of the students that, you know, the president of the student body is also usually one of our student ambassadors, mm. who's also usually helping the community with some sort of volunteer work. So you, you sort of have these cross patterns where students are really engaged. And I think they get a lot out of it. Mm. There's so much on every college campus, but there's so much here at St. Anselm that, that you can do mm. and really have a, a, an interesting time while you're at it. You know, it's not just... You know, you're going to be working hard in the classroom, but there's so much more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's all true. Like how one thing leads to another and how you can really spread yourself out. Um, sometimes some students might spread themselves out too much, but that's an important lesson to be learned as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, lot, lots of opportunities, lots of different things to do at uh, St. Anselm, especially within the politics department, the opportunities are quite immense. Now, uh, I kind of want to go to our final section of the interview, and I kind of want to talk about uh, some political anecdotes, if any, uh, funny stories uh, from any of your past experiences here at the Institute. Well, I'll try to be funny. It's a little bit hard, but um, I have had so many sort of strange experiences with, with politicians, national politicians and people that that I could write a book. And I, I, I'll just tell you a couple quick ones. They both involve Republicans, but uh, you know, when Donald Trump first came into New Hampshire, I actually arranged it all, and I picked him up at the airport. I drove him around. Um, you know, he, he had uh, memorable times, but he, he got sort of in an argument with his legal counsel, Michael Cohen, in the car one time when I was driving back to his 757 aircraft, by the way. That's a big, big aircraft that says Trump on it. So there's no reason to go to the cell phone lot when you're waiting for him because the plane just flies over and you know he's here. So uh, he got in an argument because Cohen wanted to get dropped off at LaGuardia, but Trump was going to Mar-a-Lago, which I didn't know what Mar-a-Lago was at the time. This is early on, you know. And so Trump is going and arguing. I said, I'm not stopping in New York, Michael. He says, uh, Neil and I are going to Mar-a-Lago. And I, and I couldn't figure it out. And I sort of started to figure out what it was. And then I said, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm supposed to, you know, I'm a New Hampshire guy. I'm supposed to be cooking dinner tonight for my <laughs> wife. And when I call her from Palm Beach, Florida, and say, I'm not sure when I'm coming back, honey. <laughs> you know, I think some of these things are fun. I visited him in Trump Tower. I have a very memorable day of that. But here at the Institute, it was kind of funny. We, I, I had flown in this summer from California, and I had taken the red eye, so I, I came to work early the next day, and I was doing great. And at 3.30 in the afternoon, we had former Vice President Mike Pence speaking to law enforcement. He's got a very soft way about him when he's just talking, and I'm in the back of the room, but I'm right in his eye shot. And I remember thinking, oh, this, this jet lag thing is, is just, you know, it's baloney. And then all of a sudden, the jet lag hit me, and it was so embarrassing because you never want to do that to a speaker, the former vice president of the United States. But I can tell you that I was out for a few moments, <laughs> and, and he saw me. <laughs> so I, I remember getting up and leaving the room, and I... I was so, you know, people who have jet lag know there's nothing you can do once you're in the zone. Once and, you're out. And uh, so I, he has been here twice, I think, since then. So I was able to fess up <laughs> and we had a good laugh about it. But, uh, you know, it does happen. Yeah. And sometimes even the best speakers will put you to sleep. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess that's true. <laughs> even the best.
But Neil, thank you so much for you know sharing your story with the Institute and for sharing some hilarious anecdotes about uh, your experiences with politics. Um, you know, we, we will see you around the Institute and, um, you know, thanks again. And, well, you're welcome and yeah. I'm glad to do this and, you know, I'm always glad to talk to prospective students or students that are here that maybe aren't engaged in our program and uh, always happy to sort of learn about them and, and see what their interests are. And I'm sure we're going to have a lot of good things coming up in the future, so I'll see you around, James. Sounds good. I'll see you then. Thank you, Neil. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. Thank you, James and Neil. That was a great interview. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on All Hours.